So as I mentioned uh, yesterday, we were going to talk about why agriculture is important right now. And I want to shift a little bit this afternoon and talk about what it kind of looks like. I won't get into lots of details. Uh, still, like I said yesterday, not a how-to seminar. Uh, but I want to talk about what it would look like within the context of the church to have farms, gardens, in relationship to our educational institutions. Uh, I'll do this in two parts, so part three, part four. We're going to talk a little bit about education and character development. In the next hour, we're going to talk about education, agriculture, and academics, uh, and how farms benefit uh, academic programs. And then uh, at 4.30, we'll do part five, which neither group has heard. Uh, so it'll be different yet. And then we'll end it with that at 4.30. So part three, gardening, mission, and the end. Let's start with some statistics. So I shared with the group this morning in 1999, Roger Dudley, who's a professor at Andrews University, finished 10 years of research on youth in the Adventist church and the departure of our young people from the Adventist church. In other words, Roger Dudley was observing what many other Adventists were observing, that is that young Seventh-day Adventists were not staying in the church. They were leaving, and his question was why? So he found 1,500 Seventh-day Adventist young people scattered across the country and sent them a survey once a year for 10 years and tracked their church membership, whether they were in the church or out of the church, whether they were active in the church if they stayed in the church, or they were just names on the book but not active. And he did all this research, and what he found is not good news. What he found is that between 40 and 50% of Seventh-day Adventist young people are leaving the church immediately after graduating from high school. And that's pretty consistent with what many of you and I have observed in our churches. For the past uh, 15, 20 years, as I've been an Adventist, uh, I've had the opportunity to travel and, and visit a number of different churches, both here in the United States and in other countries. And I've observed a fairly consistent phenomenon. Whether that was in Lincoln, Nebraska, where I was preaching when I was studying theology at Union College, or it was in the little church that I interned at in Iowa, or if it was in one of the churches I spoke at in Arizona, or in California where I now reside, or in other countries, you go church to church, typically you will find an absence of young Adventists. When I became an Adventist in 1997, I was nearly the only, and my sister who was baptized about the same time, we were the only young people in the 15 to 20 year old age bracket. There were very few. There were a couple kids that were just a little bit younger than us. There was almost no one in their mid-20s. And you started again when you were in your 30s. And I have seen that over and over and over again at all the churches that I have visited. And I find that his statistics seems to be fairly accurate. And consistent with what church administrators and church educators are also observing and sharing and acknowledging that our young people are not staying in the church. When he did his research, he came up with a, a number of uh, reasons why. Uh, there wasn't one reason. There's a number of them. Uh, some of it is that our young people aren't involved in anything. They don't have something for them to do. Some of it is, is that they don't feel loved in our church. They sometimes feel like the Adventist church is a works-oriented, obedience-oriented, either you did good or did bad type of church and they don't feel supported and valued for who they are 
in the context of their own personal struggles, and, and they don't get the love and support they need, and so they leave. Some of them find that church members are inconsistent in their beliefs. You could probably use the word hypocritical. We go to church, but we don't live what we preach. And they're not impressed by that. And he gave a long list of reasons why young people are leaving the church based on those surveys. And the results that uh, he compiled were kind of frightening. What's more interesting to me, when I continued to read into it, was that he found that young Adventists weren't the only Christians leaving their church. He says here, this is in an uh, um, interview with the Adventist News Network. He says, while the study was conducted on Adventist youth, the pioneering nature of the study made it of general interest to other denominations. Go down to the bottom uh, half of a third of that. He says, I have found that many denominations are concerned over this very problem. In other words, it's not just Adventists who are losing their young people, it's Christian denominations of all other sorts, Catholic, Methodist, Baptist, non-denominational. The young people in those churches are not staying in those churches either. He goes on, he was requested to give uh, a summary of his presentation to the Religious Research Association. I believe that's a non-denominational organization. He says, many people of many faiths packed the room to hear my presentation and to request copies of the research. He says, no other religious group has ever attempted such a comprehensive and extensive study on church youth. And the other leaders of other denominations and other educational institutions, Christian that is, were interested in the unfortunate phenomena of our young people not staying Christian. And while I am a Seventh-day Adventist and I value the uniqueness of the Adventist faith, I have to acknowledge that there's a bigger problem in society and that young Christians do not see a value in staying Christian, even if they have gone to a Christian school. This led me to some other research. I found that in 2008, the United States government, under the leadership of George Bush II, released a research document called Preserving a Critical National Asset, America's Disadvantaged Students and the Crisis in Faith-Based Urban Schools. I don't know the full backstory to this, but someone in the Bush administration had discovered or was made aware of the reality that faith-based schools were closing in America, particularly in urban areas. And so the Bush administration uh, conducted this research and published their results as to what's happening with faith-based schools in urban areas in the United States. And what they found is exactly parallel to what we've observed over the last 50 years, 60, 70 years in the Adventist church, is that Christian schools are closing, not just Adventists. <clears throat> he says, starting in the 1960s, or the document says in the 1960s, there was a sharp decline in the number of private schools and enrollment in those remaining denominations. Schools were closing, and the schools that stayed open had fewer students. That's pretty much the Adventist problem in the last 50, 60 years with education. Catholic schools, for example, had about 13,000 schools in the United States in the 60s. By 2008, when they published this study, 
that number was down almost in half to about 7,000 schools. That's a shocking number, by the way. Shocking in the sense that Catholics have 13,000 schools in the United States, and shocking that their numbers were cut in half. And again, this is in urban environments, not rural. We're not talking about boarding academies. This is a chart that they had in that document highlighting different uh, denominations. The second column is the number of schools and whether there was a gain or a loss in those school numbers and the number of students that were lost in the process. So you can see that the Assembly of God closed 65 schools over that time period, Baptist 185, Catholic 564, and so on down the list. They highlight Seventh-day Adventists down here. We had closed 71 schools in the same time period as these others were uh, studied. And we uh, lost 4,000 students through the closure of those schools and decline in uh, enrollment in other places. Total loss over the time period was almost 1,200 schools, nearly a half a million students no longer in Christian education. A lot of people are asking the question, why? And again, this is an urban-based school problem. Uh, in my personal experience, I've heard a lot of Adventists discuss the unfortunate closure of our boarding schools. Last year, we closed Mount Vernon Adventist Academy, which was the oldest non-college level, in other words, high school, in North America. It was a very sad story, similar to so many others, but it's unfortunate that the very first Adventist high school now no longer exists. I actually know alumni from Mount Vernon Academy. Anybody here by chance alumni from there? Nope, not in this room, okay. Many Adventists have had the impression that the closure of our boarding academies was a result of the population shift in the United States from rural areas to urban areas. And so our kids just aren't being sent to boarding schools because parents want to keep their kids closer to where they are instead of sending them off to someplace far away. But what the Bush administration document highlights is that it's not an issue of rural versus urban schools or where the demographics now reside in the United States. That there is a systemic problem in Christian education where parents and young people no longer value Christian education and are not sending their kids to Christian schools, whether they're in the city or out, doesn't matter. And I think for us, we have to look at this and sharpen our focus and say, why is it that our young people and parents are no longer choosing to send their kids to an Adventist school. Or perhaps the even difficult, more difficult question is why is it when our kids do go to those schools and then graduate that they don't stay in the church? Now I run a farm and we sell our produce to the public directly. And I used this illustration this morning that if I have consumers and they don't continue to purchase my product, especially if they have tried my product, then they're telling me something about how they feel about my product. If I pack a box of produce and I deliver it to your home and you order a couple times, and then you decide, I don't want to order from them anymore, and you cancel or you stop ordering, the question is why? For me and my business selling produce, for some people, it's that they actually don't eat a lot of <clears throat> fruits and vegetables, and when we send them a box of produce, it's too much for them. Many people in America have gone to a more fast food, uh, fast preparation diet. Uh, they don't know how to cut up and prepare a meal from scratch like we did 50 years ago. So maybe we're sending them too much produce. Maybe they don't like the variety. 
Maybe people get too much chard and they don't like chard or they don't like kale and they don't know what to do with bok choy and they don't like the type of product you're sending them. Maybe they think it's too expensive. Maybe, maybe they don't think that organic is worth the extra price that you pay for it. Maybe they don't understand why organic is more expensive. And so, because they don't make the connection between the value of the product, uh, the product quality, and the price of the product, they can't make that connection intellectually. They don't understand it well enough. They just stop ordering. And I look at it from a business point of view, and I say, hey, why aren't Adventist kids going to Adventist schools? And why is it that those that go to an Adventist school don't stay in the church afterwards? And I want to be polite in saying, from a business point of view, perhaps it's because there's something wrong with my product. And remind all of us that this is not just an Adventist problem. It's apparently a problem that is spread across all denominational education in the United States. There were only two exceptions, which I deleted from this slide because it wouldn't fit. The only institutions, only religions that showed positive growth in educational enrollment and the number of schools was Muslims and Jews. You said what I thought too. Hmm. So there is a real issue with Christian education, not just private religious education, because otherwise the Muslim schools wouldn't be growing. Otherwise the Jewish schools wouldn't be going. There is something systemic within the culture of Christianity where for some reason Christian parents and Christian grandparents and church members and even the young people themselves don't value the educational experience that the church offers like it used to be valued. And what's more unfortunate, again, is that those that do go, according to Roger, Jud uh, Roger Dudley, aren't staying in the church. And I wanted to know why. Kind of already covered this, but the uh, government report highlighted Seventh-day Adventists specifically. Between the years 1989 and 1990, 13% of the Lutheran schools were closed, 28% of the Baptist schools, and 39% of Central City, that means urban Seventh-day Adventist schools, were closed. The issue is, is that they're leaving the church after they graduate from school, according to Dudley's research. They're going to Adventist schools, they're brought up in the church, but when they reach their 20s, they leave. Ellen White says a couple things which I find to be very interesting. She foretold this problem on two fronts, and the first one was the financial front. She says the wants of the cause will continually increase as we near the close of time. Means, that's resources, money, etc., is needed to give young men a short course of study in our schools to prepare them for efficient work in the ministry and in different branches of the cause. We are not coming up to our privilege in this matter. It's a privilege to give to Adventist education, even if you don't agree with everything that is being done there. It's a privilege to give to the Adventist cause, a cause that is unique above every other denominational cause in North America. Seventh-day Adventists have a unique calling among all Christians, and it's a privilege to give to that cause. Sometimes we don't agree with the way the cause is carried out, I know. Yes, ma'am. Your question is, how short is short? I did do a little bit of research on this. It's been some time in the past. Uh, but it is not, it is different from vocation to vocation as well. You would not expect the same level of training given to a doctor that you would expect 
to some other vocations, but we're looking at a couple of years, not the length of time that is sometimes given to things here currently. Now, there were a lot of cultural differences too. Uh, you had a different mix of age brackets attending Adventist schools in the early days of our church where you didn't have the same developed infrastructure and education in America that we do currently today. So there were some differences, but definitely it was a short, very intense course, uh, not long. She specifically repeats not a long period of time in study and emphasizes hands-on, real-world experience over academic education. She goes on here and saying, uh, again to summarize, the cause will need more money as time gets closer to the end and we've not come up to our privilege in giving like we could have. She continues and says, all schools among us will soon be closed up. The question is, why does she make that statement? And if you go back to the previous half of the paragraph, it's because of money. It's because of money. She foresaw a time in Earth's history when Adventist education would be losing its schools for the lack of money. Because people would no longer invest in our school system, those schools would no longer exist. I believe that you and I have come to that time or are very close to that time today. And many of you know the sad story of a number of our schools that simply no longer exist. Or the, the enrollment is a fraction of what it once was. How much more might have been done had men obeyed the requirements of Christ in Christian beneficence? What an influence would this readiness give all for Christ, to give all for Christ have had upon the world? She says, it would have been one of the most convincing arguments in favor of the truth we profess to believe, an argument which the world could not misunderstand nor gainsay. The Lord would have distinguished us with his blessing even before the eyes of the world very interesting quote, our lack of willingness to give to our school systems has produced a situation where God has not been able to bless us in the eyes of the world. We have missed an opportunity to make a statement to the world that is not easily misunderstood. And instead of increasing our educational work, it's contracted severely. And our statement is actually the opposite of what it could have been. It is kind of negative and very sad. I want to flip to the positive here as soon as I can. One other statement here. She foresaw this issue. She foresaw this issue, not only of the financial issues in education, but also the departure of our young people from the church. I want to read you this very interesting quote that provides a solution to the problem, or a solution to the problem. I have been led to inquire, must all that is valuable in our youth be sacrificed in order that they may obtain an education at the schools? If there had been agricultural and manufacturing establishments in connection with our schools and competent teachers had been employed to educate the youth in different branches of study and labor, devoting a portion of each day to what? Mental improvement and a portion of the day to physical education, physical exercise, She says, physical labor. If a portion of our time had been devoted to mental study and a portion of our time to physical labor, there would now be a more elevated class of youth 
to come upon the stage of action to have influence in molding society. The youth who would graduate at institutions like that would many of them come forth with stability of character. They would have perseverance, fortitude. What's fortitude, by the way? It's a form of endurance. And courage to overcome obstacles. And principles that would not be swerved by wrong influence, however popular. I have to look at that quote. You and I, and I want to ask you, we have to look at that quote and ask ourselves the question. If an educational system that was balanced between physical and mental labor produced a crop of students that had those traits of character, courage, fortitude, perseverance, endurance, and principles that were absolutely unmovable, if that type of education produced that type of results, and we're seeing the opposite results, let's work backwards. Why is that? Because our educational model is producing that type of student. I'm not being critical. I'm not trying to be critical. I'm not trying to be judgmental. I'm not trying to be negative. But as a business person, if people are not buying my product, if my product is having a negative outcome in the marketplace, I as a business person must make an intelligent decision to evaluate the product that I am offering. Or if, if I do not, consumers will continue to stop purchasing my product and I will go out of business. That is the law of business in a consumer-driven marketplace. Our young people do not have those traits of character. If I work backwards, that's because they've not had an educational experience that developed those traits of character. And if we do the reverse, we'll get the reverse. And that's what the solution is, or part of the solution. Your educational environment doesn't change hypocrisy in the church. It doesn't change legalism into the love of God. We still have to look at all the reasons why young people leave the church. We need to be more consistent in our faith, not just preach, but practice. We need to be loving and accepting and tolerant of the weaknesses and the mistakes that people make without criticizing and judging them. And many of us as Christians, not just Adventists, many Christians cannibalize each other in the name of faith. We have to look at the whole picture of things that needs to be addressed and why young people are leaving the church. But in the context of education, that is a very specific and precise point. It's a very simple equation. If you educate this way, you will get that result. If you educate in a balanced, systematic way, balancing physical and mental labor, you will produce a class of students who have the traits of character that that education produces. If you don't, you won't get those results. I walked down the halls of Rio Lindo Academy 10 years ago, maybe. Some former students of mine were getting married. They asked me to perform their ceremony. We were there on Friday, going through the rehearsal and all the things for the wedding on Sunday. They gave me a tour of their school that was their alma mater. I was walking down the halls, and you get back to the early days of that school, the 1930s, 1940s, and you look at the graduating class photos, and had everybody's photos in the frame, and there would be 120, 130 kids in the class, and as you walked down the hallway of that school, every single picture frame got smaller and smaller and smaller. Actually, what they did to make it a little less obvious as to what was happening, they kept the picture frames the same size, made the pictures inside the frame bigger with less students. 
it was a shocking visual illustration of the year-by-year decline of that institution. I personally spent 10 years in ministry working with young people from Cole Porter programs to evangelism in high schools and college-level programs, and I personally know many Seventh-day Adventist young people that I have invested my time, my money, my effort, my love, my teaching skills, and everything else. I've invested that into their life only to see them leave the church. I'm not speaking down at this church. I have personally experienced the gut-wrenching pain of people that I loved and labored for living life outside the church lost. It's sad. It's unacceptable. And I have to acknowledge that maybe there was something that I was doing wrong in my educational experience that contributed towards them not staying in the church. I want to be solution-oriented. I want to be positive. If, I, if we, as a church, corporately reevaluate what we're doing, we can re, uh, realign the results. And I want to do that. I told you yesterday, the reason why we're doing this is mission. The reason why Adventist education exists and every other Adventist institution exists is for the purpose of saving souls. And it certainly starts with the souls of our own young people. And the promise of God in the Old Testament is that I will save your children. I want to partner with him in that. They would not be swerved by wrong influence, however popular. It's a powerful quote. This model is actually not unique to Ellen White or to Adventist belief. It extends far back into history beyond Ellen White. You go back to the writings of Martin Luther. Uh, I teach an Adventist history class every year. Uh, It's really more of a Christian history class. I was studying several years ago for that uh, class and preparing new material and came across a letter that Martin Luther wrote to the councilmen of Germany, the leaders of his country. It was on education and educational models. And when you read Luther's, uh, I believe it's literally called To the Councilmen, you will find that his educational model was nearly identical to what you just read in the paragraph before. He talked about study that abandoned the junk that many of the schools of his day uh, were teaching kids. The unnecessary stuff, the Latin and all these other things. Just get rid of that stuff. Teach them the important stuff and make them work every day. I find that as I read Martin Luther's material that he was nearly identical to everything that Ellen White wrote on education. In a lot of other ways, Luther was a really cool guy. He was very, very much ahead of his time. She goes on here. As relaxation from study, occupations pursued in the open air and affording exercise for the whole body are the most beneficial. No line of manual training is of more value than agriculture. A greater effort should be made to create and encourage an interest in agricultural pursuits. She goes on, let the teacher call attention to what the Bible says about agriculture, that it was God's plan for man to till the earth, that the first man, the ruler of the whole world, was given a garden to cultivate, and that many of the world's greatest men, its real nobility, have been tillers of the soil. God's model of education goes far back into history, farther than Martin Luther. 
It goes back to the way that many of God's greatest men in history were educated. It goes, in fact, all the way back to the Garden of Eden. God, at creation, instituted a model of education that was perfect and would be precise and successful throughout the history of planet Earth, regardless of the time period. So you think about God's great men. I throw some names up there. You got Noah, Abraham. You can maybe add Isaac and Jacob. You've got Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, Jeremiah. You've got so many of these guys. We think of the first come to our mind when you think of Bible character, hero type characters. If I change the slide and the color a little bit, you'll realize that many of these guys had their education rooted in a farm. Noah, I mentioned yesterday. When God told him to build the ark, God also told him to collect all the seed he had grown and store it into the ark. Abraham was a shepherd. So was Isaac and Jacob. So was Jacob's son, Joseph, who we talked about yesterday in Egypt, whose farm background prepared him for the crisis of Egypt. What was Gideon doing when he was called by the angel? Threshing wheat. David. I talked to the young people last night about the story of David and how Saul told David, you're a young man, you can't go fight Goliath. Goliath's been fighting since he was young himself, and you're like nothing, David. You're just a young guy. David responded with what? A story of how when he was shepherding his father's sheep, that a lion and a bear came and took sheep. And how David himself, I'd like to meet David, they've got to see this here with his bare hands, killed a lion and a bear. And David's like, I don't care about the Philistine. You try taking on a lion. But he learned that courage. He learned that perseverance in the face of obstacles. Not by sitting in a classroom for eight hours a day for the first 18 years of his life, but by shepherding sheep in the wilderness. And so he said... I don't care about the Philistine. The Philistine said, I'm going to take off your head. David said, I'm coming to you in the name of the Lord, not with a sword. And with your sword, I'm going to take off your own head. Where did he get that courage? Where did he get that boldness, that aggressiveness? It was in the education he received on the farm. Elisha was doing what when he was called? Plowing. Now Daniel and John the Baptist and some of the other guys, they weren't farmers that I know of. You've got the disciples. They weren't farmers, but they were fishermen. They were common people. They learned industries and skills. They learned hard work. They learned to work from sunup to sundown, being up before the crack of dawn sometimes to catch the fish. They learned those things in their vocations. It was those things that made them the type of people that God could use even above the more educated people in society, the more traditionally educated people in society. Paul himself was a tent maker. He had a trade that shaped him in part into what he was. There were two names that I skipped. Did you catch them? Cain, yes, he was a farmer. There were two names on the screen that I skipped. I skipped Elijah. And I skipped one other one. I skipped Jesus. Skip Jesus. I want to make a statement to you. I ask you to think about this. You don't have to believe it because I say it. 
but I do ask you to think about this. I will tell you, my studies, I believe that both Elijah and Jesus had the same upbringing. Let me show it to you. The only thing we know about the prophet Elijah in the Bible is half a verse in 1 Kings chapter 1. Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the inhabitants of Gilead, said unto Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. All we know about Elijah is he was a Tishbite in the land of Gilead. And I ask myself the question, why is that the only thing that God chose to tell us about Elijah? And I started to study into it, and I found a couple things. I found, number one, that the word Tishbite, many people think it's a reference to a town in Gilead. But archaeologists to the very day have failed to find any archaeological evidence for a town in the land of Gilead known as Tishba. It doesn't exist. But the Hebrew word does actually mean stranger, like foreigner, like immigrant. And scholars now believe that, or some scholars at least, believe that Elijah's family was from the northern ten tribes of Israel and that they were fleeing from the apostasy of Ahab in the northern ten tribes and they found refuge in the land of Gilead and that family brought up their young son whose name was Elijah and probably their other children as a place where they could practice the worship of the true God in freedom and with liberty. Gilead has an interesting story itself. Gilead was on the east side of the Jordan River, and uh, Numbers 32, verse 1 there, tells us that the children of Reuben and the children of Gad had a large number of cattle. They were herdsmen. And when they were on their way into the promised land with Moses, they observed that the land of Gilead was really good for pasture. And when they saw that the land of Jazer, the land of Gilead, that behold, the place was a place for cattle, down in verse 5 now we'll go. They said to Moses, if we found grace in your sight, let this land be given to your servants for possession, and we will not go over the Jordan with everybody else. So Elijah was grown, he was brought up in the land of Gilead, a land that was precisely chosen by those tribes because it was perfect farmland. I would ask the question logically, what was Elijah doing in a farmland? Or at least potentially. Was he a shepherd? Was he a farmer? Was he a herdsman? What was Elijah and his family doing in the land of Gilead, a land that was chosen by the Israelites because of its potential to produce agriculturally? I would say that God put Elijah in the place that he needed to be to obtain the education that made him what he needed to be when he told him to go talk to Ahab. The type of upbringing that would shape into him the perseverance and the courage and the fortitude and the principles that would not be swerved and he could stand right in front of Ahab and say, by my word, not a drop will fall from the sky. He got that by his upbringing. But what about... Uh, oh, a couple more quotes here. This is from... Uh, non-Adventist biblical dictionary and encyclopedia. Both of these authors say basically the same thing. The future history inhabitants of the tribes that occupied Gilead were greatly affected by the character of the country. Rich in flocks and herds, now lords of a fitting region, they retained almost unchanged 
their nomad pastoral habits of their patriarchal ancestors. The next guy here, this is Fawcett's Bible Dictionary. He says, pasturage abounds in Gilead more than Western Palestine from whence Reuben and Gad chose it for their numerous flocks and herds. The physical nature of the what? Affected the character of its people. They were shaped by the land. They were molded by the land. They were developed into what they were by what the land did to them. Elijah was made who he was because of where he grew up and because of what that experience did to him. He became the man that God needed him to be. But you say, wait, now what about Jesus? Why did I put Jesus on the list, highlighted with all the other farmers? You say, Jesus, what was his occupation? He was a carpenter. There's even a Bible verse for that that says that Jesus was a carpenter. This is from Justin Martyr. He was an early Christian, lived in the 100s. Jesus came to this earth to accomplish the greatest work ever accomplished among men. Oh, I'm sorry. This is not Justin Martyr. This is Ellen White. Excuse me. I'll get Justin Martyr next. Jesus came to this earth to accomplish the greatest work ever accomplished among men. He came as God's ambassador to show us how so to live, to secure life's best results. What were the conditions chosen by who? The infinite father for his son, a secluded home in Galilee, a household sustained by honest, self-respecting labor, a life of simplicity, daily conflict with difficulty and hardship, self-sacrifice, economy, and patient, patient, gladsome service, the hour of study at his mother's side, with the open scroll of scripture, the quiet of dawn, or the twilight of the green valley, the holy ministries of nature, the study of creation and providence, the soul's communion with God. These were the conditions and opportunities of the early life of Jesus. Why is it that Jesus could so easily and so prolifically rattle off the instruction that he did, the parable of the sower, the parable of the fig tree, the parable of the good soil and the bad soil? Why is it he could talk about the vineyard and the, and the husbandmen? Why is it he could use those illustrations that he so often used that were drawn from the farm except that he himself was familiar with the farm or the garden. If Jesus was the creator of the whole world, and Jesus designed with God the Father the perfect occupation for Adam and Eve, why would he himself not partake of that same, that very same design in his early years as a human being? Is that a speculation? If it's not speculation, then there must be a reason for it. I'll share with you my reason. Jesus either shared those illustrations from personal familiarity, or he was using illustrations that he knew nothing about. Did Jesus talk about things that he wasn't familiar with? When Jesus said, let me read the quote from Justin Martyr. When Jesus came to the Jordan River, he was considered to be the son of Joseph, the carpenter. And he appeared without comeliness, as the scriptures declared, and he was deemed a carpenter himself. In parentheses, 
Justin Martyr adds, for he was in the habit of working as a carpenter when among men making what? Plows and yokes. When Jesus made a plow in his carpenter shop, do you think he took it off his workbench and handed it straight to the guy who bought it? Jesus took that design, he took that design out into the field, put that plow into the ground himself and felt the work of his own hands and designed that product from personal experience, I believe. Jesus was familiar with the effect when he said, no man having put his hands on the plow and what? Turning back is fit for the kingdom of heaven. He knew what happened when you turned your head while holding a plow. Does anybody know what happens when you turn your head while you're holding a plow? You get a crooked row. I learned this firsthand when I was driving a tractor with a plow on the back for the first time. I was constantly looking behind me to see what the plow was doing. This particular plow I was using had a couple issues with it, and sometimes it would, it would pop out of the ground and would not sit the way it was supposed to sit. So I was always looking behind me to make sure the plow was doing the right thing. Until one day I noticed, well, that's really ugly. Who did that? <laughs> because it's easy for the hands to follow the eyes. And I believe Jesus spoke from personal experience. When Jesus used in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30, that all too familiar and beautiful gospel invitation, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. What was he speaking of? He was speaking of his superior skill as a craftsman in designing a yoke that would perfectly fit you and I. He was not saying that he was going to take the yoke off his shoulders and give it to you. He was not saying that he was going to let you join in with him in the yoke that he was carrying. He was saying, I'm a master craftsman. I know agriculture. I know agricultural tools. And I know how to build a tool that fits you perfectly. I believe that Jesus in every single story, when he said there's good seed or there's seed that falls on the good ground, there's seed that falls on the bad ground, I believe he knew that from personal experience. Personal experience in his human life. Not personal experience in his divine life. That when he walked as a man, he walked under the same conditions and opportunities that he wants us to have. A very interesting quote from Justin Martyr. I'm going to read a couple uh, lines here and then we'll end and take a break. Ellen White says, The foregoing is a statement of what might have been done by a proper system of education, but time is too short now to accomplish that which might have been done in past generations. We can do much even in these last days to correct the existing evils in the education of youth. And because time is short, she says, we should be earnest in earnest and work zealously to give the young that education which is consistent with our what? Our faith. I talked to you yesterday about our mission. I talked to you yesterday about our understanding of prophecy and the role of Adventists in society. And here she's saying, because of what we believe in right now, because time is so short, it is the very reason why our young people should have the type of education that they need to have in order for, for us as a church to fulfill our purpose in society. Because time is short, our young people should have an education consistent with our faith. 
We desire our children should study to the best advantage. In order to do this, employment should be given them, which would call into exercise the muscles. Daily, systematic labor should constitute a part of the education of youth, even at this late period. We're going to talk about that in the next hour, how many people in the world today are coming to realize that a hands-on learning environment is the best learning environment for young people. Even the world is picking up on this. I want to end with a couple of verses from Scripture. There are many people, as I've talked to them uh, in society, who believe that the Bible is no longer relevant. The Bible is merely a reflection of the culture in which it was produced. There are many Adventists who actually believe that Ellen White's writings are merely a reflection of the society that she grew up in, the Victorian era. Many people, I've heard it told to me, her councils on agriculture are no longer relevant. See, back in the early 1900s, the late 1800s, when Ellen White wrote, there were so many more Americans that lived in the country. Of course schools should be teaching agriculture because that's what the kids all went home to. They went home to the farm. They needed to learn how to do that stuff. Well, it's not, that's not right on a number of points. Like anybody I've ever talked to that grew up on a farm already knew how to farm before they went to school. I mean, I talked to a guy today who said, I knew how to drive a tractor when I was seven. My daughter is 11, and she knows how to drive a tractor. They didn't learn to farm at the school. They learned to farm at home and then went to school. Ellen White taught them to learn to agriculture and encourage that type of education, not because it was a reflection of her society. Romans chapter 15, verse 4 on the screen here says, Whatsoever things were written before were written for our learning that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. In other words, the Apostle Paul is saying everything that God has given us in the Bible was written for us. It was written to them, but it was written for us. Paul is saying essentially that what happened to them in the past is relevant to us today. He goes on in 1 Corinthians 10, even more specific, more precise. He says, now all these things happened to them. This is the Israelites in the wilderness traveling through for the 40 years. All these things happened unto them as examples. And they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the, what are come? The ends of the world. Every day that passes into earth's history means that the Bible becomes that much more relevant. What God wrote yesterday will be more relevant tomorrow than today. Rather than the Bible being a reflection of society in the past, rather than it being less relevant because it's so far removed from us, every day the Bible becomes more relevant. The Sabbath becomes more important. Our understanding of prophecy is more important, more important tomorrow than today. The same thing with the teachings about education. The experience of Moses shepherding in the wilderness made Moses the leader that he was supposed to be. If God needs leaders to take his universal church into the promised land for real and for final, where will the leaders like Moses be educated today? Will they have the four-year, eight-year PhD, MDiv degrees? Will they have doctorates and masters? And will, Are those things wrong? No. But is that the type of education that made Moses the leader he needed to be to deliver Israel into the promised land? Are we shaping our young people today into the leaders that we will need to carry us into the promised land tomorrow? Close with a quote from, uh, I believe, Prophets and Kings. 
Nope, third selected messages. Ellen White writes, each of the ancient prophets spoke less for their own time than for ours. In light of our mission, in light of our understanding of prophecy, my encouragement to you, my suggestion to you, is that the principles of character-based education through farming, through hands-on learning, through other trades, carpentry, electrical, whatever it is, are more important to our young people today than they ever have been in the history of our church. And that if we will go into the promised land, it will be by developing that same set of character-based traits in our young people through the same methods that God used to put it into Moses or Joseph or David or Elijah or Jesus. Or if you want, the Baptist preacher who started the Adventist movement, William Miller, who left his farm to preach the coming of Christ. Why is it that so many of God's men through history were molded through the influence of a farm? This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.